I miss a green, for example, I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. Welcome back to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another episode of the Yoke with Doak. Today's podcast is uh, with Tom Doak. We recorded a couple pods last week, and this one will center around listener questions. We got a lot of great submissions, um, sifted through and picked out a few of those, as well as we discuss uh, Ballyneal. It's a golf course that he built in Holyoke, Colorado that we haven't really discussed in detail on the podcast yet. So I figured it'd be nice to chat with him uh, about that golf course. Hey, I uh, I got to apologize. I misspoke last podcast. I, I was talking about Club TFE, our new membership, and I said that it was $120 a month. That's not right. It's $120 a year, $10 a month. So it's $120 per year. Uh, we are posting almost daily on their blogs and uh, great discussion in the comment section with members as well as a uh, we're doing a ton of cool stuff. So we had uh, we had a video last week. We have a video every month as well as uh, weekly course reviews and daily blogs pretty much. Now, maybe not every day, but close to it. Five days, uh, probably a week, we will have a new blog up there. So Without further ado, let's get to Tom Doak, and uh, thank you guys for listening and the Club TFE support to date. Tom, we're back, uh, and I'm excited. I, uh, a course that I've visited a few times now that we have never talked about is, uh, is Ballyneal, and I think it's one of the courses in your career that people have uh, people talk about um, the most in, in America. And, uh, and I'm, I'm excited to kind of chat a little bit about it. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of, uh, kicking off talking about this a little bit, I'd, I'd love to hear about, you know, 2006 is when it opened. Uh, what, how would you describe this time in your career? It was the busiest I'd ever been till until right now, you know, the year after Pacific dunes opened, uh, you know, we started getting calls about all these great projects, but, but, you know, it took a little while for that pipeline to happen. It took a year for people to really have seen it. And then, you know, like I was telling you before, like, you know, from the time somebody calls me until they actually build a golf course is at least a year, usually a, two years. So, you know, Pacific Dunes opened the end of 2001. So by like 2004, 2005, I'm, we're super busy. And, um, you know, I think we built, we were working on Stone Eagle, Ballyneal, and Sabonic all at the same time. Um, all big, important projects, really different pieces of ground, really different situations. <laughs> and, uh, you know, all exciting and, you know, you know, ramping up, you know, had it. That's when a bunch of young people started working for us, and you know they were they were starting to do some cool stuff. Um, you know, it was a really good time. 
and there were just a ton of new golf courses opening then. And even though Pacific Dunes was a hit, it was like, you know, some of the golf courses I built then were like just overlooked or, you know, like the year Ballineal opened, it was the sixth best new private golf club in America, according to Golf Digest. What was number one? Do you remember? That, I do, that year, I do not remember what was number one. I don't think it's rated higher today than it was <laughs> than Valley Neal is. But, you know, that's, you know, Valley Neal was sixth and Tumble Creek was seventh. And wh- what was the other one? Something else we did was in there. Sabonic was the next year. Sabonic was the best new course the next year. Mm-hmm. I said Stone Eagle was like ninth. <laughs> I gotta gotta find that list. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go uh, digging through the Golf Digest archives and okay. see see uh, see what was what was put ahead of it. Um, what I, I, the land obviously it's called the Colorado Chop Hills. Uh, what were your first impressions when you saw the land and uh, and this project came up? Um, so you know, I got a call about it in 2002, I think. You know. Uh, the O'Neill brothers, Jim and Rupert, were the clients. You know, Jim was a golf pro. So I think I, I talked to him first. And, uh, you know, he, he, you know, he told me that they, you know, they, they had always like, you know, growing up out there, you know, they'd watch the British Open on TV and, you know, look at the land out in their backyard basically and go, that, that is really, that's that kind of land. There should be golf out there. And of course, you know, they were in no position to do anything about that. And then Sandhills opened and it was like, yeah, we were right. But they still were in no position to do anything about that. And then I think their father had passed away. And so they, you know, they, they had to decide, you know, or, are we just, you know, are we still in the farm business as a family or what are we doing? You know, Jim was obviously removed from that. He's a golf pro out in Northern California, but but you know they were. What do we do with the land? Should we should we actually go for trying to build a golf course? And I don't remember for sure if whether Jim had played Pacific Dunes at that point or not. But he certainly knew about it and knew about me. So I was the first person they called about talking about doing a golf course, and I think I was the only one they talked to about doing the golf course. Um, and you know they didn't have a lot of money and. You know, it wasn't very clear if the thing was ever going to happen when we when we were starting out. So, you know, I never it took me a long time to work on a plan for it because I would only be there for like a day or two at a time when I had some time. And that was never enough to process it all in my brain, how much was going on out there. You know, I was around Sandhills a little bit when they started that because I knew Bill and Ben really well. And I knew Dick Young's cap from my days with Pete Dye. And. You know, Sandhills, the thing that the thing that kind of surprised me about it, but but I but that I understood about it pretty quickly was was that the golf course is actually on pretty gentle land. You know, if they'd have gone anywhere else, but they did, it was starting to get more steep and rugged and they didn't do that. They just they stayed to the gentler stuff. You know, every time you open up a, the grass and have a bunker, it looks really dramatic. You don't have to be on really wild crazy ground for that to look really sexy so they stayed to the more gentle part and you know bally neil from the first time i was there it was clear that 
you know, no, you, you couldn't do that here. There's some really severe stuff that's the right scale for golf and that you would want to use that. And, you know, that was also what would make it a little different than Sandhills. I mean, I was keenly aware that whatever we did, you know, it was going to be seen as a follow-up to Sandhills and it was always going to be compared to Sandhills. And of course it was never going to be better than Sandhills, <laughs> but you know, I didn't want it to be the same as Sandhills. You know, I wanted it to have a different character than Sandhills. So uh, whatever people said about it, they wouldn't say, Oh, they just ripped off Sandhills. Yeah. And, and the land, obviously it, people draw comparisons. They say it's similar, it's similar, but the land at Ballyneal, I would say the the formations are much more abrupt. They are. And and then, you know, you're seeing the afters. It was even more abrupt when we started. You know, there's three or four holes there. We had to do a significant amount of work to make them playable. But, you know, because they're all kind of down in a valley, you don't know what was in the middle of that valley when we started. You're just seeing that the sides are still the same. So as far as you know, it was all the same. <laughs> mm-hmm. The uh, So with the you had the abruptness as a way to differentiate. Were there any other things that you looked at Sandhills and said, hey, this is how we can make Ballyneal really stand apart from Sandhills? Um, well, you know, I, I mean, I, I love the... You know, Jimmer Bean and I walked Sandhills after they'd laid out a golf course and mowed down the native grass, but before they had done any construction work at all. And it was such a natural golf course. We hit balls around the back nine. You know, we kind of made the turn and I'm like, why don't we just hit balls? <laughs> so, so we did that on the back nine and, it, you know, got in a car and we're driving back to North Platte. And I was like, we're counting, there were like 14 greens at Sandhills that they didn't have to shape anything. I think they, they shaped them very gently. But there were, I mean, there were most of the greens there, they were there, which is, you know, most sites, if you have two of those, that's amazing. And you're really not getting, you know, and most architects would never, because they're so used to having to change them anyway. The, the, the two that would be good to go, they'll, they'll tear up anyway, just because. Uh, but, you know, so I never, so I didn't think going into Ballyneal, you know, it's like, we're not, we're not going to have that. This is too rugged for that. And, you know, and not to say this in a negative way about Sandhills, but because that was like that, you know, they didn't, they didn't want to, you know, they, they wanted to find the perfect routing where they could leave that stuff alone and not change anything. But you know, that also kind of limited what they could do. They, they didn't, you know, number two is one of the only greens that wasn't like that. And that's the wildest green on the golf course, but you know, they, they, they weren't gonna, you know, make conscious decisions about I'm going to do this kind of green or this kind of green that I haven't done somewhere else before. Cause they, cause they had so much there to start with, you know, so for Ballyneal, I thought, okay, you know, we're going to do some di- really different greens than Sandhills because we don't have perfect natural greens here. And, you know, to me, what makes the golf course different and really cool is that uh, probably more than anywhere I've worked, it's like, you know, the contours around the greens have everything to do with playing golf there. It's like, you know, you're playing off the side of a hill into the green 
and it just comes right down into the middle of the green that, you know, that's not only like you can do that, but some polls, you should do that. That's, that's the way to, you know, make the hole easier for yourself. And, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, and, and really there's not many, you know, I wasn't thinking so much about all the courses in the UK, but none of them have really have hardly any of them have greens like that either. You know, I mean, the best links in the UK, there's only a handful of places like Macrahanish and St. Andrews and yeah, I'm not thinking, I, I haven't been, I didn't thought about it in advance, but there's, I can maybe name six or seven that there are some really cool kind of wild natural green sites there that they just left alone. You know, most of them are shaped up, you know, by, by men without machines a very long time ago. Yeah. You know, the greens, I think are an interesting um, topic there. I the first time I played it, it was at the end. I had done Sandhills for a couple of days, and we played Bally Neal. I was tired, and we played it, and I I enjoyed it. But the greens, they are. I mean, there's a lot going on, and I think like, you know, you can get if you're in a mindset of fair and unfair, you can get you can get hit shots that end up really far away that you think were very good shots. But the thing that I've kind of realize and and this goes with some other courses are in the same bucket i think like kingsley club uh, that mike devries built is in a similar bucket where the more you play it the more you realize like well like that's not the place to aim the place to aim is over there right and it it's an interesting you know for somebody that's a member at Ballyneal, this is probably one of the most rewarding qualities of the golf course but for somebody who's a one-time visitor, a one-time guest who might play it once or twice, yeah. that is the tough thing about those greens, right? Is that they don't know where to hit it to get Correct. that to funnel it in. But it's you know, you know, it, it's a tough thing about being an architect. Is like, are you know, if you think about like, and I, I, I doubt that this is at the top of mind when you're designing, but like a ranking, like what we we opened this podcast about, like it, it was the seventh best rated course or whatever mm-hmm. on the on the year if you're only playing it one time that's probably going to be the way you feel but if you if you if you're a member and you play it 10 times you feel completely different about the greens right so a lot of that the golf course being underrated originally was just that it was a bunch of guys who came once and it was wildly different than what they expected and they hit a shot straight at the flag and it wound up <laughs> way not anywhere close to the flag and they thought this is crap plus it wasn't in really good shape when it opened and that didn't help either um but yeah i mean you know of all the golf courses i've built i would say that yeah by far you know ballyneal is the one where the members are so they love the golf course they're really engaged with it i hear from them all the time about you know how they played and what they did and you know how certain holes work out and how they, you know, they didn't like this hole before and now it's their favorite hole, um, which is really fun. You know, that means it's working for the long term and it's a membership club. That's what it should do. It makes you think that like, it's almost, I, and I guess like this is, you know, what you were talking about, uh, you know, working with Mike Kaiser in the last podcast we did and how he, do you really need to do that? It, it's almost like there's a different, a different, uh, mentality for a resort course versus a 
a private course. Yeah. And, you know, I've tried not to be like that and not to be so conscious of, you know, I, you know, when I was, when I was just starting in the business, Jack Nicholas did an article for golf magazine and, and like how we would approach building a par four for different clients, like private club, tournament golf course, resort, public golf course. And, you know, they're all different. The, the resort had lots of flashy bunkers and the public course was just as dumbed down, hardly any bunkers as you could get. And I was like, God, I mean, you know, it's like we don't, you know, if it's a public course, we're not trying very hard. It was, it was like, no, don't do that. You know, build, you know, build good golf courses for public consumption too. But there is, you know, when you build something, nearly everything I build, you know, I'm, I don't want it to be all straightforward where, you figure it all out the first time you're there. So, you know, anytime I do that for a resort, I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking, okay, you know, there's some people that aren't going to like that and they're never coming back, but is that going to be okay? Is client going to be okay with that? Is, are there going to be enough people that like it and come back that you don't care that some people don't like it? You know, that at the end of the day, that's the important question. Mm -hmm. Is are some people going to like it so much that you don't have to you don't really have to care about the people that dismiss it right off the bat? But yeah, it, it is a conscious decision. And so, you know, Bally Neal, the, the, the issue was like, you know, I said to Rupert O'Neill before we started, I was like, you know, this place will fail if it's not one of the top 50 golf courses in America. I mean, out here where it is, you know, Sand Hills is another couple hours down the road realistically, you know, you're only going to get people to keep coming back here if it's a really great golf course. And I, and I said, and I said to him, and it might not even succeed if it is. And, you know, sure enough, it went bankrupt in the recession because, you know, they didn't, they didn't have enough financial backing to get through when it was impossible to sell a membership. Um, you know, the way the bankruptcy worked out was, was, kind of awkward and you know it's still sort of in the family <laughs> but but um i mean it wasn't that the golf course failed exactly it was just like they didn't have the resources behind it it it, it opened at like the worst time it could open too pretty much you know maybe you know maybe not you know if they, if you know they had just enough time to sell a bunch of memberships but unfortunately Politically, they had messed up and they, you know, they weren't able to set, they, they pissed off somebody in Denver pretty hard. And so the word was on the street in Denver, don't do business with that. And like, you know, if they couldn't sell memberships in Denver, they were doomed. <laughs> with the greens, I guess like one of the things out there, I, I think one of the, the virtues of the place is this walking only. And then you have the, you know, the ability you know, I think one of the stark contrasts between Sandhills and Ballyneal is the agronomy and the, you know, you really, if you go there on on a symbol, on a trip together, you see how you have to maintain a golf course with cart play and how you don't have, how you have to yeah. maintain, how you can maintain a golf course without cart play is one yeah. of the amazing, you know, things that you can see. And I think one of the things that, all everything that goes on around the greens and the way the golf courses maintain accentuate these greens. And I'm curious, you know, what 
what's the, you know, as greens have gotten faster and faster, has that taken anything away from the greens at Ballyneal? Oh, I'm sure in the, you know, when they get the greens fat, you know, the greens, greens aren't the natural way of doing things. Greens aren't consistently fast all through the season. It's like in the spring, you know, they're slow. And in the summer, maybe, you know, when it's 110 degrees out there, you back off a little bit and let the grass get a little higher. And then in the fall, they can be fast because there's no, you know, you're not worried about about disease pressure and you're not worried about they're just going to burn up and you can really cut them tight and get them fast. So there's a range through the year. When they get their fastest, you have less options of where you can put the hole. I mean, there's still hole locations on the greens that work, usually in the lower areas, but some of the edgier hole locations that you might see in the spring or early in the summer, no, they're probably not using those very much, you know, when the greens are really fast. So, you know, thankfully, you know, Ballyneal is not the kind of place, you know, there's a lot of private clubs in America now that are like, it's in the superintendent's contract that the greens will be 11 for six months straight. And that is ridiculous. And yet the superintendents encourage that because it, now at least they know what the standard is. You know, you can't fire me if the greens are 11 in the, if the, you know, the greens are 11, that's what you said you wanted. It's, it greets me. The thing I think it does too, if the greens get fast at a place like Bally Neal is like the balls all end up in the same spot, which is what yes. you don't want because the, the slopes right. become so big and so fast. And I think that's a, a, a thing that you see across the board with what's happening with green speeds is they just are, like, I mean, I think back to when I played junior golf and it's like the place I grew up playing, it was, I mean, even I go back there and the greens are fast. I mean, and it's like that, that course, you know, I, they had to be six or seven when I was growing up and it was like, yeah. you know, you learned how, like you had so much slope and greens and everything, but now, you know, you just start to see greens get muted because of the speed, because the balls all end up in the same spot. It gets impossible to get it to certain spots. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, 50 years ago when I started playing, like, you know, even the good clubs, the the green speed on an average day was seven or seven and a half or eight. Maybe. You know, I mean, a place like Wingfoot, they could get it. They get them to 10, but they weren't 10 all year. They were 10 for the club championship. Mm -hmm. You know, that the, they didn't want to. Nobody would spend the money or resources. The, the, I mean, the, the grasses themselves would have been hard. It would have been really hard to do that for a whole season back then. But nobody wanted to spend that kind of money back then, even if you could have. What what aspects of Ballydale do you look back on most positively? Like, what what are your favorite memories? Like, if when you think about Ballydale, what were your favorite memories of that? Well, the, I mean, you know, one of the coolest one of the cool things about it was, you know, I mean, Jim O'Neill was a golfer, but he was a you know he's you know we're we're building a golf course in the summer, and he's he's a golf pro. <laughs> he's got he's got something to do, so. You know, I didn't figure out until just as we started with, you know, Jim's not going to be re really be around here at all. It's Rupert that I'm dealing with day to day. And, you know, Rupert was kind of unpredictable to deal with every day, but he wasn't really a golfer. And so he took the attitude that, you know, just make it fun. You know, he had no preconceptions about that's not fair or 
you should try to do this or that or the other thing. You know, it was just all about making the golf course fun. I, I had one other client that was the same right then, Richard Sattler, who we did Barnboogle for. Richard wasn't really a golfer, and he's just like, you know, make it fun. Make people want to be here. You know, Richard was in the hospitality business. And so, you know, I felt like I had more license from them to do some wild thing. And then, you know, as it turns out, both jobs, I had Brian Schneider shaping greens. <laughs> he wasn't the only one. You know, Ballyneal, we actually had like, you know, everybody was there for a little bit. Um, I'm told a couple of people have told me Jim Urbina takes a lot of credit for Ballyneal, which is interesting because he was building Sabonic at the time and he wasn't there really at all. He was there. He was one of the, he was he was the one who like walked around the property with me in the beginning when we were routing the golf course. But he had almost nothing to do with building it. Kai Golby and Brian Schneider and Bruce Hepner lived in a house in Holyoke all summer. You know, the three of them were the main part of the crew. And then, you know, Eric lives in Denver, but he was working on Stone Eagle. So he only he built one or two greens there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I shaped one or two. And those other three guys did most of them. Uh, but, you know, they were all, you know, we built a lot of courses in these really small towns with like nothing. There's nothing else to do. There's there's hardly any place to go have dinner there's really nothing else to do but talk about golf all night and then go out the next day and try to build something even wilder than you did yesterday. And, you know, I don't know. And, you know, if, if it was today, 15 years later, I don't know. Those guys might not be having the same kind of fun that they were then. But at that time, it was like, you know, we were all still pretty young and it was like we were not jaded to any of this. And it's like, we're just having a blast out here and let's see what crazy things we can do. And I think the golf course really benefits from all that. Explain one hole where this kind of dynamic played out. If you, if, or one green or, or a feature that got built because of this kind of, um, you know, golf. Yeah, I mean, as somebody who loves golf, you just think about being a fly on the wall at night and then going out. It, can you remember a specific example of this happening? Well, the, I mean, the, the green I always think about the most on Bally Neal is number seven. But it's not it's a good example of collaboration. It's maybe not exactly the story we were just talking about. I'm trying to think if there's a better example of that. But I'll tell you the story on seven. So s- number seven originally the green was going to be up to the right more where eight T is now. And, you know, and I didn't have a really good green side up there. And that was the perfect place for number eight T because eight, you know, that eighth fairway kind of pinches to that one point on the left mm-hmm. and the higher the T was and the further it was to the right, the better that was going to present itself. And, you know, at some point I'm just like, well, if I don't really have a great green site for number seven up here anyway, I might as well put the T where that was going to be and then put the green for seven down below there somewhere. But I didn't have that figured out either. So, you know, we're building all these other holes and I'm still trying to figure out how am I going to get a good green in here for number seven? I didn't know what I was going to do. And then finally, you know, we've been trying to build a green kind of like the seventh at Crystal Downs at Sabonic. And so I'm out at Bally Neal and, and, you know, I'm looking at the, the green was just like in a 
you know, like a half pipe valley. You know, if you look at what the landform actually is there, it's just it's just a narrow bowl and with, you know, fairly high on the left and even higher on the right. And and I was struggling with like, how am I gonna build a good green in here? Because like everything's just gonna funnel down into the green unless I leave some long grass in the face of the hill, and then you're either gonna funnel down in the green, or you're gonna get stuck up there. That's gonna suck. And then after staring at it for a long time, I was like, well, the one on the left isn't so high. I could actually like take the short grass all the way up over that and then just let the let the right one come down low. And you know, once I once I thought about the, the, the shoulder on the left, I was like, oh, that's like the the kicker thing on the on the green at Crystal Downs. You know, so we can we could just dig a little bunker to the right to keep stop those long grass on the right from coming into the green. That's where it stops. And then you can play around the bunker using the, the, the slope on the left. So Brian Schneider was up on number, he was up the hill. So he was on number two or three or something like that. And I, you know, I called him down and I told him the idea and he, he dug out the bunker for number seven and he slapped the material into the green to make the little step ups that are there. And, you know, we built it in like an hour, hour and a half. <laughs> You know, I, I looked at it for like 10 hours over two or three trips and then it took no time to build once I really had a good idea. So that was, you know, you know, we, uh, uh, Brian Slonick was there too. I left him out, but he, he shaped greens there as well. We all did. And, um, you know, a lot of cool stuff and a lot of different stuff. What what was the hole that you had to create the most? You so you talked about how you had to you know there there were some that was just too severe that you had to do significant earthwork and to your eye you wouldn't know because of everything around it being existing but there was significant work in yeah. in the landscape. Well, the the big ones were number two, the you know where the fairway goes down the slope. That was way way more severe than it is now if you can believe that it's like, <laughs> you know it's hard to you know, the ball wouldn't have stayed anywhere it just was all topsy-turvy and then crash into the bottom um and then you couldn't you know it started out even higher in the landing areas so you couldn't see anything down the rest of the hole so a lot of work there uh number number nine we had to cut through more where the where the hole goes through the neck a hundred yards short of the green. That was the first, you know, that was like the leap of faith. Okay. We have to do this to get back, to get back to the other side. Mm -hmm. So we did that the fall before we started construction actually. Um, and then number 14, you know, we had to cut through dunes there and we kind of built the green right where we cut through the dunes. Okay. Um, and then, but the, the biggest one was number 17. And I think that turned out the coolest because, you know, the, the green site's natural, but the fairway was so much more severe. You know, there's, there's, you think now, well, there's a, you know, it's kind of high on the left and then there's a big slope going down to the right. And that big slope was there and we didn't really change that, but that big slope just was like where the, where the middle of the fairway is now, the, du the dunes were eight or 10 feet higher. You know, it was just like, up and over so you know when we started everything was either going to be down the right or over to the left and blind so you know we had to pick the point to like cut all the rest of that away 
and fill in the left side and tie it in so that you had the upper left side that was that you could see where you were going. And, you, you know, so you had the opportunity to bail to the left and still play the hole. And it worked out great. And, you know, people don't see that stuff. You know, it's just like, again, anything that's in the middle of the hole, you can make a 10 foot dune completely disappear because you don't see the, you don't see the slope that it was tying into, but it, you know, it was, it was pretty hard to get the, you know, to, to, to start changing it part way up that big slope. That's still there. That was the thing that was like, yeah, that's going to be tricky to do that and have it not look like we changed it. Yeah, it's it's like tying it into the big thing is the hard right. thing. It's not what goes on inside because it's uh, that's those big dunes kind of obscure everything else because it they're so big that it, your eye kind of draws that way and that's the mo- that it makes a lot of sense. Now for a quick word from our sponsor, Cozy Earth. Cozy Earth, they are a a new sponsor, and they make really great stuff for this time of year. It's obviously winter. It's uh, it's been kind of gnarly out here in California. It's been raining a ton. I've been really forced indoors. And what's been awesome is having Cozy Earth. They make really comfortable stuff. They have men's loungewear, women's loungewear, uh, pajamas, you know, sheets, towels, stuff like that. It's, you know, as the name implies, it's really comfortable stuff. I, uh, I've i really, really liked the sweatpants that uh, they're like the joggers that I've been, you know, wearing a ton because I've been really just sitting inside watching it rain. Uh, so this stuff is, uh, it's naturally breathable besides being comfortable. It's temperature regulating and it's made from the, pre- uh, from bamboo. So it's really good stuff. I uh I can't recommend this enough. Person that's really into it is Mrs. Friday. She's been, you know, she's been looking at the website trying to find more stuff to buy. Uh but, you know, if you're looking for a good Valentine's Day gift uh for your partner, this is it. This is great stuff. Uh if you use the promo code fried egg, that's just fried egg. You get 35% off uh, site-wide. So incredible deal. 35% off site-wide if you use the promo code FRIEDEGG. Go to CozyEarth, C-O-Z-Y-E-A-R-T-H.com. And uh, you can look through their immense catalog of comfortable stuff. So thanks to Cozy Earth. And now back to Tom Doak. The idea behind, like, who came up with the no T marker idea, and how did that run with, and and was that, you know, what what were your thoughts behind that? Obviously, it's become kind of an ethos of the club. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't remember all the details. I mean, we, we you know, we've talked about that for years. You know, we we've we certainly talked about that on projects before Bally Neal, but again, that's where you know that's where Rupert O'Neill, not being from the golf business whoever said it to him and I don't know which of the guys said it to him. He was like, yeah, we'll try that. Why not? (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, and some of the people that he, that he got to join early on, they just took it and ran with it. And it's like, that's their thing now. Uh, You know, it makes all the sense in the world. 
but you know, it'd be easy to operate every golf course that way if it weren't for the handicap system. And the, you know, the handicap system is like, no, you got to report a score and it's got to be from right here. And Valley Neal is not Sand Hills before Valley Neal. They started the thing. They don't even, they don't have a USGA course rating. You can't, you can't return scores from Sand Hills and Valley Neal. And Sand Hills, even though you're playing from T markers, it's like, you know, they just, they're just realistic. It's like, you know, in the morning it's calm and in the afternoon it's blowing 40. So yeah, your scores are going to be like six shots different if you played the same. It doesn't make sense to report scores out here. It's uh yeah, I mean I, that's one of the constraints of the handicap system, right? Is uh and, and, and what it does to the to golf. It's uh it's a it's a really neat golf course and, and just uh it's always fun to think back on those holes and uh thanks for th- talking to us about that. But uh let's go to some listener questions and uh we got a bunch so I want to get through some of these. And uh one that's prescient that's in the news, the ghost tree this the winter storms have not been good to the ghost tree at old McDonald and Riley Wayland wants to know how, if so, would you replace the ghost tree? If, if something happens to the ghost tree on the third hole at old McDonald. You know, I only heard about, I, I saw it on social media somewhere. Yeah. Nobody called me and said, it's going to fall. What are we going to do? <laughs> um, you know, and there wasn't, there, there actually was a tree at the, in the back of the left bunker on the eighth green at Pacific Dunes when the golf course opened. And if you were in the back left bunker, the tree was kind of overhanging the bunker and you could have to play a bunker shot like up over the lip and under the tree to get on the green. <laughs> and that blew down like year one. And they, they tried to guy wire it back up and it you know lasted about a month and then it blew over again. <laughs> and you know, it was already, it was pretty controversial. So they just took it out and nobody remembers that anymore. I, you know, I got to see this tree. I, I want to see this it, tree. It's kind of iconic now, but, you know, you can't replace that. I mean, you know, it's it's iconic because it's big and it's got this gnarly shape and you can tell it's been there forever. You know, it's up to them. And, you know, my understanding is Mr. Kaiser is like, no, you know, we can't, we can't replace that. But, you know, they might... They might get pressured to try. And personally, no. I mean, it's it's a very cool thing. I'll be sad to see it go. But even dead trees die and get replaced eventually. Was there ever discussion when you designed the hole of doing anything but leaving the tree? Well, there were two trees. There were there were two trees there originally. There was a there was a there was a dead pine further to the right that was, it didn't have the gnarly shape of the one on the left, you know, but you know, when you looked at the, when you looked at the, yeah, during construction, it looked like you were trying to kick a field goal from 150 yards. <laughs> and, you know, it was clear that at least one of them was going to have to go. And, you know, it, it was very hard for us to like figure out, like, you know, when you stand on the tee, it's like, what is the line to the green here? You know, we, we had trouble lining it up to understand, like, you know, that the, the, the ghost tree wound up being more on the beeline to the green than I actually thought it was when we were building the hole. But, you know, but we've, you know, the, the one to the, the one to the right was more in the middle of where most people would want to go. So I was like, nah, that plus it didn't look that great. 
so you know we we kind of i mean you know jim was really attached to the tree i don't think mike really was at that point um you know and i was just like well we'll see if it works you know we'll see if it works you know there's no reason to take it down now you know if if people keep hitting it then probably it's going to get taken out in a couple of years but you know it just it's you know there's nothing else quite like it so and it's it's had a good run but um i don't know how they'd ever replace it while we're on the subject and this is from uh your friend peter flory he wants to know what the most underrated hole in old mac is the most underrated hole your favorite kind of question and by by answering this, it's going to become the least underrated hole, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first is a very underrated hole. It's you cool know hole. that that double plateau green that's pretty severe. You know, you're not hitting a very long approach shot into it usually, unless it's dead in the teeth of the wind in the summer. Then it's pretty hard. Um, but that that green is tough. And, you know, it's underrated because they don't use the wings of the green for the pin very much at all. Mr. Kaiser thinks it's too hard for the first hole with those hole locations. So he just tells them, put it in the middle of the green. Don't use those hole locations. You know, the few times they've had like a tournament there, you know, when we had the Renaissance Cup there, the pin was back right. And, uh, you know, we wound up having a playoff for the championship and that, you know, that decided it. Somebody missed that to the right and couldn't get up and down for par. And sure enough, when they had like the, was it the, was it the Publinks that they had? I think so. It was either the Publinks or the Mid-Am that they had the final on Old Mac and it went to extra holes and that decided it. Same hole location. It's like as good as those guys were playing, making four to that hole location, they couldn't both do it. I really like how, you know, if you play a, a traditional, like a old Mc, or a, a CB McDonald, Seth Rayner double plateau, you get that, that principal's nose 30 yards out. And mm-hmm. at the time, it's right in the approach where you're landing balls, running it in. One of the things I really liked about that hole in, in a modern form was pushing that up to the green edge because it makes you think if you, if it's not into the wind, it really makes you think like, do I want to push this up here? And have right. to hit a fifty-yard wedge shot off tight, a tight, firm surface over yeah. a little bunker that I want no part into to hit it right. into the screen. And I thought that right. was and like then a it's really not smart right up eye. against the green either. It's it's kind of that awkwardly little bit short, yeah. And it hides the ground in between, so you're down. You know, you're down there on that shot that's all feel, and you can't really see all of it. It's right where you want to land it too, to that front right part part of the green. So you want to kind of just kind of cozy that in and let it release out there. You don't want to be trying to hit that that hard spinner early in a round. Um, moving on, Bradley Peterson has a I think a prescient question with I think rising construction costs obviously are a big thing in design. What's the future of new public daily fee courses you can play under sixty dollars? Can such a thing be built? No. Not in America. You know, not not with all the standards and expectations we have for a new golf course. No. I mean, you know, so the rule of thumb is this is an old thing. I don't know why it still wouldn't apply. The rule of thumb I always heard in the golf business in my early days was like every million dollars you spend to develop the thing, you're going to have to charge 10 bucks to break, you know, to, to break even. So, you know, 
if you spend $6 million, that's a $60 golf course. So you can build a golf course for $6 million, but you can't develop a project for $6 million, you know, with a, with a clubhouse and a maintenance building full of maintenance equipment. Used to be you could do all that for $6 million. Now it's more like 10. So that's a $100 golf course. Opening a brand new $60 golf course, if anybody does that, it means they're failing right out of the gate and $60 is all they can get. <laughs> they're, they're running the Costco business plan with the rotisserie chicken. If they're doing that, it's a loss leader. You know, they're, they're trying to try to. Yeah, but a loss leader for what? <laughs> I know, that's not my point. <laughs> you don't have any expensive stuff to sell them. <laughs> um, that's a, that, I, I never heard that rule of thumb and that's, uh, that's valuable information. So the, the way to have. I if I think about it the if I think about a way the best way to go about that would be defunct courses. Yes, that have yes. infrastructure. I mean, the only affordable golf courses are old golf courses or you know the really screwed up thing about capitalism and the golf you know this is a big part of the golf business too is the golf course that could be a $60 golf course is the one that's already failed and gone bankrupt and somebody you know you spent 20 million dollars to build it but the next guy buys it for five, mm -hmm. you know, now he can charge 60 bucks and make a profit because he didn't have to pay for all the construction stuff. He, he bought it for t a 25 cents on the dollar. And that's what, you know, that, I mean, the, the screwy thing about the, that the bit business in general, it's not just the golf business. It's like, you know, you can have a responsible designer and a responsible client. It's like, we're trying to do this, at a reasonable thing. And, you know, we managed to get it done for $10 million and your competitor down the road does it, does it for 20. And they're like, they're an idiot. So they go bankrupt. And then somebody comes in and buys that for less than you spent. And, th and then they kick your ass. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Because once you've put the money in, if you buy that property for pennies on the dollar, then you're at a huge competitive advantage. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of times the places that are successful are places that failed and you inherited all that shit for free. All right. Here's a question. This this one I like because uh, Zach Blair and I had a side discussion the other day about this kind of topic. And I'm I'm very curious. What makes a good strategic par three? Uh, this is from Peter Cannon. And and my follow up question Zach and I were discussing, can a par three even be strategic? Yeah, he texted me about that too. Maybe he was in the middle of his conversation with you. <laughs> I was, <laughs> I had was like a hundred, trying to beat you. I had like a hundred and three fever at that moment. Oh. What he was, and I was like sending him voice memos back because <laughs> I couldn't even like text. So it was, uh, it was a, uh, it was a discussion, but I, I, you know, the only thing I could really think of is like a 16th at, Par at Cyprus situation where you have the option to kind of lay left yeah. and play in. There, There's a handful of holes like that in the world. The 6th at West Sussex in, in London, is, in England is another one. But, there, you know, there's not many holes like that. I mean, it has to be really long. You know, I mean, the reason those holes are like that is because they're 220 from the back tee and 210 from the middle tee. You know, so most people can't go for the green. And they have to consider a fairway. You know, if you move the tee up to 160, everybody, you know, if you could put a tee for the 16th hole at Cypress Point at 160, everybody go for the green. But, the, you know, you're, you can't do that. Uh, so 
So, yeah, that kind of strategy, yes, it's very rare. But, you know, when Zach texted me, I was like, you know, I have an answer for you, but I'm more curious as to what you think. And he, and he sort of, I could look at, I'll look up the discussion. I don't think I he, he doesn't, he doesn't think par threes can be strategic. Cause like I buy one thing. I was like, well, like a Rodan, you could aim right at it or you could play it like short, right and bounce it in. And he was like, yeah, but if that, that's the way to play it is playing it short, right. And bouncing it in. There's not, it's not strategic. So I, you know, I, I have right, a hard so time he, figuring so out strategic I'm, I'm par threes. Here's my text conversation with Zach. I was like, I'm actually more curious to hear what you think. Do you always aim at the middle of the green? Do you always aim at the pin? He said, well, I certainly don't always aim at the pin. Sometimes because something is so penal, it's not worth making four or worse. But is a, is like a Redan strategic? You're aiming towards the kicker to help the ball feed somewhere. Or obviously you can forgo the kicker and hit it at the pin, I guess. Gun to my head, I would say, yes, that, that would be strategic. And I said, you know, I, you know, I don't know whether it's strategy or it's tactics, but yeah, there's a lot of hole, you know, there's a lot of par three holes where, you know, do you go, you know, 12 at Augusta, do you go for that sucker pin? Is that strategy? Or is it just tactical? No, you'd never go for that. I think that's strategic. So there's a lot of holes that like, you know, if the green's got enough going on, Piner's number two, any of the greens on the par threes there, it's like, where can I afford to miss this? Mm -hmm. Am I just going to play for the very front to make sure I don't get, you know, because if I, I know if I miss right with the pin back, there's no way I'm getting up and down from there. You know, it's whether you define that as strategy or not. But I think if you do, then yes, par threes are strategic. I think that almost you almost have to have like the the it has to have significant slope in the green. To I I no. the way I would describe it is like you well, need... honestly, most par fours and par fives do too. I mean, yeah, you you get a more open approach this way than the other way. But what really backs that up is there's enough going on in the green that you can't. You can't just go over there. That's mm-hmm. going to kill you. Yeah. And it's like if if you have uh, the one th- one hole I'm thinking of is like six at National Golf Links, the short par three, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Where like if you know that green well enough, there are multiple places you can hit a wedge to get to certain pins. You know, yeah. it's not now, necess- that one. That one, I would say it's like there's different places to aim there, but I don't. I'm not sure there's much strategy to that. I mean, you know, when the pin's in the little bowl, it's like you're not going to aim at the wing on the right. You know, whatever section it's in, you, you could got to aim at that section. <laughs> I guess, well, one of the other things about that green is I've been in a position on that green where I'm con- I laid up on a putt. Yes. I think that's maybe some strategy too, and people would say it's unfair but I remember it's like one of the shots I most vividly remember in the last five years of playing golf was laying up for a putt and making like a 15 footer for par and feeling like I like ran out. I was like, if I put it this way, it's going in the bunker. I have to lay up over here yeah. and I have, to, and I made the 15 footer and I felt like I like robbed a bank. 
<laughs> I, I've done that a couple of times too in my life, but it's been a while. It's but like, it's like where. that that strategy because you could go right at it, and I could have made the putt for two potentially. But if I don't make it, it goes yeah. in the bunker. I chose an alternate route, but. Right. You know, most cases you build a green like there nobody would ever build that green today because it would be deemed unfair. I'd build that green today for the right if the client would let me. <laughs> yeah. I it's uh all right, uh Joe Colangelo, I think you wrote a little bit about this in uh getting to eighteen. You did write about this in getting to eighteen. I'm curious if there's any other projects that would fall into this bucket. Uh he asked project that never came to fruition that you most wish you could have done. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I did a thread on Golf Club Atlas once and I had like 18 of them. And everybody was like, you know, and one of the reasons I did it was because like all the young architects that are on there, you know, oh, my big break just fell through. Oh, my big break just fell through. And it's like, that's the business, man. I mean, half the things that you sign up to do never happen. And you know, you've got somehow you have to power through all that because it's still going to happen to you, even if you're more successful. That's just the nature of it. So, like, you know, I got a list. There's there's three of them that I'm still dying to do. One of them's Punta Brava. Maybe I get to do that now. You know, one of them's the second course at Cape Kidnappers that Bruce Hepner and I laid out, which we were going to do very minimalist and just like put sheep fence around the greens and only irrigate the greens and let the rest of it be grazed. And, you know, Julian Robertson being a billionaire just, you know, didn't understand that at all. And maybe, maybe I, maybe that was the wrong thing to, maybe the, it would have been better to pitch that to him. as just like a full on another 18 holes for the resort, which makes no, which would make no sense. I mean, they, you know, they got 25 rooms. <laughs> they don't need 36 holes for 25 rooms, but you know, it's such a beautiful site. It's so different than the other golf course. It's, you know, two miles further on and it's down in the valley. And there's like, you hit over these hundred foot ravines that cut through it. I mean, it's a spectacular thing. And, you know, Bruce and I hit balls around it because it was all grazed down anyway. And I was like, that's some of the most fun I've ever had. And it wouldn't take much to build it. So I hope he left a little money in his will so we can go do that someday, <laughs> but I'm not counting on it. What are your uh, thoughts on, on holes with two greens from Dan Haynes? Holes with two greens. Yeah. Um, I'm trying, I, I guess I've done that once, Pacific you know, the dunes. ninth hole of Pacific dunes has alternate greens. Um, you know, it depends on why you're doing it. You know, a lot of places when you read that, it's just like, it just sounds like a gimmick, you know, we're doing it so we can talk about that. We have a hole with two greens, <laughs> you know, is it, you know, instead of like, these are both cool green sites and we really couldn't decide, you know, in Pacific dunes, it was a combination of they're both cool green sites. And then there are also two tees I want to build for the next hole. And one of them's by this green site. And one of them's down the hill more by that other green site. So that would actually make sense to like alternate the greens and then, you know, play 10 from low one day and high the next. It didn't make much sense to Mr. Kaiser because he likes the high tee on number 10. He thought everybody should be there all the time. So, it, you know, for a while, they weren't using the lower ninth green at all. There was like a couple of years there, they barely used it. And I think they're back to using it every other day now, I hope, because I really like that one. But 
you know, in general, you don't need to do that. Why would you do that? The one, the one application I've seen that's pretty good, Tom Fazio built several golf courses when things were booming 20 years ago that had, you know, he built, usually it was a short par four and he built two greens. And the reason was so he could build some, a, a really small green because he was a stickler for not, you know, I can't build a small green because the superintendent can't deal with the traffic on an everyday basis. So his minimum green size was like 5,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. And he never had a hole that was like, I, I don't know if I can hit this green, but you know, he started doing that. I think inspired by eight at Pine Valley. So he had two fairly, you know, he had two fairly small greens that you were alternating between. And, you know, then he felt like he could make a really small green. That ma- that makes, uh, I guess that makes a little sense. Like, right. It, 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 it gets the wear pattern out. Yeah. But, um, you know, I go to the old adage, you know, for most part, mo- in most cases, if you have two greens, do you really have one green? I'm not sure I understand that. <laughs> it's like it's like if you got two two closers in baseball, do you actually have no. one? Do you have one close? Do you have one closer? No. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean that's all. That's the same as the loop. Like if you're going to build something that plays two different ways, they both better be really good, or one of them is going to be the favorite, and the other one is going to be defunct in a few years. Uh, with the rise in simulator golf popularity, do you think there's room for GCA to go digital? With real-world limitations stripped away, what ideas might you pursue if you were to design a fictional golf course? And this is from David Flynn. Yeah, there's there's already guys doing that. And, you know, I mean, Brian Zager, who's, who helped us with the Lido, you know, he's been doing courses for games and for simulators for years. And yeah, he's also designed things on his own. There's a ton of guys that are out there designing their own courses for like golf games. You know, not many of them actually like do it so you can put it on a simulator and play it. But, you know, there's it's it's easy enough to do now. So, yeah, there's. Is there a market for that? Absolutely. Am I interested in doing that? Not really. You know, if if I'm going to do it, I'm, I'm going to want to do like, you know, the only the only thing I would do is something that you literally you can't do in the in the physical world. You know, what would a golf course on the moon be like? You know what it would be like to play through a city and hit balls off a building to get get around the corner. That would be you know, cool. that sort of thing that you're not, you, you know, you're never going to actually physically build that. You're, I mean, you're not going to go out and do it and get arrested. You know, that's for a game. But, you know, I I mean, I, I don't really want to, you know, I'm not a video gamer. I, do, I don't have a simulator. I'm not going to do, you know, I'm not going to do that for myself. And, and honestly, I don't, I mean, I really worry that someday that's all we're going to have left. Yeah. Nobody's going to want to, you know, not nobody, but, you know, most golf courses are going to go away. And the only, you know you as an average person without a lot of money aren't going to be able to afford to play real golf anymore. You're only going to get to be playing on a simulator. And I would hate that because to me, it's all about being outdoors. Yeah. I do like the idea of street golf. That's you could call it my street me golf too. collection. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's another you know, one. 
Here's here's your golf course right here. Golf in Machu Picchu. <laughs> there you go. Just crazy craziness. Yeah. Um if golfers deem it I forgot to write down the name of this question uh uh and I apologize for that ahead of time. It's the one name that I forgot to put down. So I I feel like that's an achievement in itself. If golfers deem it an advantage to play a hole on an alternate fairway for the sake of a particular angle, is that a sign of bad golf architecture? So, you know, if you just choose to play down another hole. I think more and more it's, it's, it's a sign that things are changing. And, it, and it's, 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 go, it's about to be a real problem. You know, the place where it's a problem today is Oakmont. You know, the last amateur, they had guys hitting down the ninth fairway to get an angle at the first green and guys hitting down the, what was it? The 11th fairway to get an angle on the 10th green and, and so on and so forth. And at the U S amateur where the crowds kind of follow in the players, you could do that without killing someone, but the next U S open, you can't, you know, they, they can't let guys be doing that in in the U S open hitting over the gallery to go in the other fairway to hit back over the gallery. And, you know, the only reason, you know, Oakmont's been there for 110 years. The only reason guys are doing that now is because they're so long, they can give up 50 yards for a better angle. And it doesn't matter because they're all so long anyway, you know, they can go over there and still hit wedge, you know, you know 50 years ago, you weren't going over there because you couldn't even get to the green in two if you did. I was talking to Henry Shimp, who is has a podcast. He played in that AM and he played uh-huh. he played at Stanford and he was talking about the other huge advantage of g- playing in the other fairway was that you didn't have to deal with the bunker lips. So if you ended up in a bunker, you were hitting out of the back of the bunker as opposed to the really high bunker lips. And you probably didn't have to worry about being in a divot. Yes, it's not where everybody goes. <laughs> and he was like, it was so firm. The fairways were so narrow. You, you had, you, you know, it was just a crapshoot as to whether you could hit the fairway. So, and, yeah. and you were probably going to roll into a bunker and then you're, you're not being, you're not able to hit it at the green. So if you hit it over here, at least if you miss the fairway and you end up in a bunker, you're not contending with the high lip. It's, right. It was a fa- it's a fascinating thing because it makes sense and it and it it goes to but it, at the end of the day you're spot on I think is like the real issue here is how far the ball goes and how far the, these the players have been able to get the ball to go. Yeah, I mean that's not a design flaw of Oakmont that's finally being revealed after 110 years. <laughs> it's like something's changed and now this doesn't work so well anymore and. You know, I'm sure that's not the only golf course. It's just the only course that all those guys playing in a big event were like, yeah, you know, this golf course is so difficult that we really need to get it. You know, I mean, everybody says angles don't matter. Why are they doing that if angles don't matter? Yeah, they absolutely matter. (laughs) Um, Do you think a course can ever be go over the edge of being firm and fast? And this is from Sandy Smith. Uh, no, because it's only going to, you know, it, that's only going to exist for like a few days at best where, you know, nobody's going to deliberately keep a golf course way over the edge for like all year. 
you know, it's just going to be, there's a drought and it's kind of getting out of hand and there's only so much we can do. Do you want to go play under those conditions or not? And the funny thing is most people do just like they, what, you know, when it, when the wind's blowing 50 miles an hour, they're like, yeah, let's try it. And, you know, and they don't, you know, and they don't like try it and, you know, shoot 110 and go, this golf course is so unfair. They accept that, you know, we played in ridiculous conditions just to try it, you know, and that's, that's not a flaw. So, I mean, you, you know, do some clubs go too far sometimes? Yes, they do. Oakmont, you know, Oakmont having the greens at whatever they, whatever speed they have them every day for the members. To me, that's not fun. You know, it's, it's part of their culture. They all think that's great, you know, but, but in general, no, you know, people aren't, you know, you could do it, but it's not like sustainable. So I don't worry about it much. I think speed can be over the top, but firmness is hard to be over the top, right? Well, it's hard in the States because nobody ever lets it get anywhere close to that. I've certainly seen it in the, you know, when, when we start, when we were starting on St. Patrick's, they had a really droughty year and I went to kind of drive up past where County Louth is and then go on the diagonal up to Donegal from there. So I stopped through one time. I stopped through County Louth to go see the golf course. And it was, you kind of, you remember how Hoylake was for that one open. Mm -hmm. It was just browner than brown. This was like straw colored. And like the ball would not stop rolling until it got in a little pocket. Those fairways are pretty flat and it's still, it had to find a little six inch pocket or it wasn't stopping. (laughs) And it it was going to be like that for the rest of the summer. Even if it rained again, most of that half that grass was dead and it wasn't coming back until they seeded it. (laughs) So, you know, that was extreme, really extreme, you know, you, but you would never, there's no way you would ever see that in America. They would never let a golf course go anywhere near that. Well, it's interesting. I, you know, Sahith Thagala is a professional golfer who was playing well at the old course, and he grew mm-hmm. up in sent in the Central Valley of of California. And I asked him about, and he goes, you know, hitting. I learned growing up hitting off hard pan, and uh, you know, drought drought fairways, effectively mm-hmm. fairways that don't have a lot of grass. He, I learned how to hit all these wedge shots, like these cut wedge shots, and different shots because he grew up playing a public right. golf course in central California. Like right. that is, it's an interest. It, like that's where I would push back. It's like the, the whole thing with golf. And one of the issues with where golf is gone with maintenance is like, you know, the whole ethos of golf is overcoming what the natural challenges right. that you encounter on a golf course. And sometimes those challenges are imperfect turf. Right. And you know, I mean, you used to have player, you know, Sahith is a rarity now, but, you know, you used to have Lee Trevino and Chichi Rodriguez and Seve. Mm-hmm. They grew up on very difficult conditions. That's why they were such good shot makers. And, you know, now it's like they never see those conditions. The equipment is different. You know, if, if those guys were around today, they probably wouldn't be stars. Because there, you don't you don't use that kind of shots to play the tour very much these days. Yeah. Um, all right. Last question from David Meyer: What course was surprising, and how it settled in and or evolved over time? 
of yours? Of mine? Well, hmm. I'm struggling with that one. I mean, you know, it has to be one of my older courses, the, the ones I've built in the last five or 10 years. You know, the surprise hasn't happened yet. Maybe it's going to happen, but I haven't seen it yet. Um, and I'm trying to think back, you know, and, and some of my early courses, I'm surprised that they're gone. <laughs> that was the surprise. Unfortunately, it closed. Um, boy, I don't know that there's one that just, it, it really didn't play like I thought it was going to play. You know, I mean, you know, we talked about Ballyneal before. It could be one that got better too. Yeah, no, it it could be. And, uh, but I'm trying to think, is there one that's really a lot better than I thought it was going to be, or just different, really different than I thought it was going to be. And yeah, there are always holes or shots, but the golf course is a whole, I can't think of one that's like, it's really not the way I thought it was going to be. What, one question I'd have, what, uh, what about um, the grass change at Pacific Dunes with the, with the just like, I, I can't imagine. Did you know when you guys built that, that the Poana was going to take over at the green on the greens? Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we figured it was inevitable that 20 years down the line, the greens would probably be Poa no matter what we did, just because it, it rains so much there. Yeah. You know, you, you have, well, there's two things. One, it rains so much. And two, you know, you've got customers that expect it to be good. You know, you can, it can rain all winter and you can kill all the POA the next summer if you let it go really brown and let all the POA die. But, you know, they're, they're full of golfers charging $250 around at that point. So are they going to do that? No, they're not going to do that. And that's why eventually you wind up with Mm POA, you know, so there's, you know, they fought the good fight for as long as they could. Ken Nice was really good at it, but eventually it switched over. And I, you know, I wasn't shocked at it or, or, you know, you know, does it, I haven't, and honestly, you know, I haven't played it a lot the last 10 years, you know, I've seen the change happen, but I played it a bunch more when the conditions were still the way it started as opposed to the the greens now. So I, I don't know if it's really that different or not. Um, you know, I think it's a little easier to just fire it at the greens and hold them than it used to be. You know, it's not as firm as the, you know, the green surfaces are not as firm as when we first, as the first four or five years. Yeah. I, I noticed it when I was there last year, just in terms of the difference between the, uh, really trails, uh, band and and pacific dunes from old mac which still has you know you can start to see some poet creeping in but it's still primarily like and that playing conditions were way different you know one interesting thing that's more of a turf head thing than than most of your readers will will get but you know so so the first golf course was planted with fescue and colonial bent grass in a like a 80 20 mix and Tom Mead, who was my turf guru at the time, and Dave Wilbur, who consulted on the thing too, we weren't sure that the putting the colonial bent grass in the mix was really the best thing. You know, we our, our first inclination was to do straight fescue, but you know, Band and Dunes was a year old. Everybody loved it. You know, they had supposedly done all these test plots and turf research, and this is the best thing. So 
you know, we're like, okay, we'll go with that. We're, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to fight tooth and nail for what you're what for what's really successful. But, but, you know, I talked a lot about that with Ken Nice at the time and afterward. And it's like the colonial bent grass is the grass. They have problems with the colonial bent grass out there and they lose it. And that's where the poet gets in. And so, so when they built abandoned trails, I was, I was having lunch with Ken over there, like just as they opened it, just after they opened it. And he took me out to the 18th green. He he said he wanted to show me the 18th green. He took me out to the 18th green and said, what do you think? And I looked at it. I was like, you didn't put any colonial bent grass in this one, did you? And he was like, no. (laughs) He said, I just thought I'd try it just on this one green to see if it made any difference. So old McDonald is, uh, that's pure fescue. And, and I don't believe that it will be pure fescue in 20 or 30 years time, but I think they'll, they'll maybe be able to hold out the POA a little longer because they didn't put the colonial bent in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it, I think that's the course that plays the best out there in terms of, of, yeah, uh, but it's at, also, you know, it's yeah. got an advantage. It's still, it's still new. Exactly. Newer, you know, the sheep branch is newer too, but those are different soils. I think they'll have a problem keeping that because the soils aren't, it's not so sandy. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, hey, this does it for another uh, another episode here. Uh, I appreciate the the time and uh, and and we'll talk again soon. You're you're super busy. So uh, we'll have a lot to talk about, I think, in the uh, in the coming year. Yeah, maybe we'll do this at a, con- at a construction place somewhere this I w- year. I would like you know, that. Get, get with some of my crew like we did at Bel Air way back when. Maybe uh, maybe Sand Valley, maybe uh, maybe Pinehurst. I got to get to Pinehurst in, uh, th- this year. Yeah, San- I'm probably only making, you know, Sand Valley is going to happen really fast this spring, so the timing will have to be perfect on that. But Pinehurst, I'll be around several times. All right, we'll talk soon. And uh, safe travels, Tom. Thanks for the time. All right, Andy. Take care. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Fried Egg Podcast and another episode of The Yoke with Doak. Today's episode was edited by Matt Ruchis. Thank you, Matt. As a quick reminder, we've got Club TFE. This has been something we're really excited about. Early feedback, I think, from, from all the members has been really positive, and we're really just pumped to put together a lot more content for you guys. So if you're interested in joining, it's $120 a year. It is, you can go to thefriedegg.com slash membership and you can learn more there and sign up there. Uh, but you know we've got a Pebble Beach review dropping this week as well as a number of other blogs. I, I've been writing uh, a kind of about a lot of the new projects that are new golf courses and renovations that are coming online. I just part two of that series will be uh, up this week. So if you want more from us on top of our free stuff, the podcast and newsletter and website posts that we're putting up regularly online, uh, sign up. It's thefriedegg.com slash membership. And uh, I think it'll, you'll look back on it after a year and say, man, that was a really good deal. So Thanks, and uh, we will talk soon.